what are the implications when you have your own customized autonomous network of smart brains? I don't care what kind of brain scientist you are. If somebody sat you down in the corner, put a gun in your ear and said, tell me how mind occurs in brain. It's like, go ahead, pull the trigger. I don't know. But you're going to end up with a new taxonomy, a new convergence. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sandisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we're talking with Dr. James Giordano and Dr. James Canton. Dr. Giordano is Chief of the Neuroethics Program at Georgetown University, and Dr. Canton is the CEO and Chairman of the Institute for Global Futures, and both are proclaimed mad scientists. We'll talk with them about neurocognitive advances and threats, the impact of AI in this space, and how the convergence of these ideas will affect the changing operational environment. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll start off. Uh, Dr. Giordano, if you could just introduce yourself to our audience a little bit for those who haven't heard you yet, and then uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, sure. I'm Dr. Jim Giordano. I'm a Pellegrino Center Professor in the Departments of Neurology and Biochemistry and Chief of the Neuroethics Studies Program and the Subprogram Military Medical Ethics at Georgetown University. I also serve as an adjunct professor of psychiatry and one of the senior bioethicists at the Defense Medical Ethics Center at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. It's in Bethesda. And I'm the executive director of the Institute for Biodefense Research here in the DC area, a federally funded think tank dedicated to biosecurity, biodefense, in light of new advances in the biosciences and technology. And I'm Dr. James Canton. I run the Institute for Global Futures, which is a well-known think tank that cuts across both private sector and government. And I've had uh, staff positions and advisory positions uh, at SOCOM, U.S. State, Defense, uh, four White Houses, mostly on emerging technologies. What are the top emerging technologies that will create both threat and opportunity? And I have a career uh, also in the uh, private sector, uh, being CEO five times for various emerging technology companies, data, AI, and I've been advisor to a lot of the folks in and around the uh, particularly at NSF, uh, a lead project I'll talk a little bit about today called um, Convergence of uh, NBIC, Nanobio-IT, and Cognitive. So I have a keen interest in uh, uh, Jim's work as well. That's absolutely fortuitous because you're on the Convergence podcast, and this is exactly what we wanted to talk to you two about today. Um, Dr. Giordano, could you expand first on that convergence uh, and really what that means for national security, uh, for offset, and everything of that nature. I, mean, I think it's always best to sort of speak from your own sandbox or wheelhouse. And uh, as some of your listeners will know, I'm a, a neuroscientist by training and by profession. My particular area is the intersection of the brain sciences and its technologies with those areas that are going to be vital for not only public health and, and biomedicine, but also key aspects of lifestyle, which would then include things like performance optimization. But of course, what you can do in terms of rendering good making people better. Uh, there's a flip side to that coin. You can also make people worse. And of course, what's good for me may not be good for you, which then brings us into the whole stage of how the brain sciences are being leveraged multinationally for a variety of nationalistic goods. 
economically, biomedically, technologically, socially, and of course, militarily and on the intelligence front. That said, I mean, understanding the brain sciences as they exist right now, and uh, I've had the opportunity to be a brain scientist for 40 years, is that the capabilities of the brain sciences and the technologies that it both uses and evolves are highly dependent upon interaction with other sciences, not just the physical sciences, natural and life sciences, which I think are axiomatic to the brain sciences, the brain is a biological organ, but understanding that the functions of the brain are psychosocial and therefore the social sciences in identifying what those, if you will, investigative targets are going to be for the brain sciences. In other words, what are we looking at? What, what cognitions, emotions, and behavior is going to be vital to understand structure and functional mechanisms and correlations? But then also, how are we going to affect those things? How are we actually going to intervene in the brain in those ways that in some way are capable of modifying, modulating, which is a fancy way of saying manipulating, those things that colloquially refer to as mind. But as soon as you get there, then you're also dealing with not only the social sciences, inclusive of law, but the humanities. What is ethically correct to do or not correct to do in accordance with what philosophy based upon what particular types of epistemology, what do we know and how do we know it? Should we go forward with these things, even though we may not necessarily know what the manifest effects are going to be? That said, the brain sciences are axiomatic for what we now consider to be advanced integrative scientific convergence. In other words, you can't do effective brain science without convergence and de-siloing other sciences, both natural and physical sciences, as well as social sciences, and more broadly, the humanities as what are sometimes referred to as a soft science. So the brain sciences are convergent, and it's that convergent that enables and force multiplies the brain sciences to be used in the social science, public, and obviously national security, intelligence, and defense milieu. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. That gets us started off really well. Um, obviously, we're going to be talking about the brain. We're going to be talking about AI. We're going to be talking about the convergence there. And you brought up the topic of um, ethics and maybe potentially asymmetry of ethics between our country and others. And we'll delve into that as we, as we get into this interview. But let's shoot over to Dr. Canton. We have had uh, stimulation. You know, when you think about all the major technological advancements that have really had uh, created the innovation economy today, most of them came out of being sponsored by the military, uh, whether it was research on the human genome or, or, or the internet. And a lot of that had to do with convergence and new models. So these notions of new tools based on convergent new accelerated vectors has made a big difference. So when it comes to the neuro and AI uh, convergence, uh, we, we think that this is a leapfrog opportunity for the United States to maybe catch up some speed against our uh, key, let's say competitors, uh, adversaries in the space. And we need to start looking at bolder moonshot leapfrogs. And what's sitting right in front of us is two communities, the AI community, and the neuroscience community and the neurocog community, from uh, certainly Dr. G's perspective, which I would concur, we need to bring them together because uh, this was recognized by myself uh, a while ago. You know, why I asked Dr. G, why don't these people talk to each other? Now, the, the classic convergence came out of the stimulation from the Synapse project, which was a DARPA project that was the first project over 25 years ago. And it seeded U.S. companies to create neural nets. Of course, what is a neural net? A neural net is based on the way the brain communicates uh, uh, from dendrites to synapse. You know, it's the actual structure of that. Well, today, 
we have neural nets that have led to, and we have deep mining that has led to, and other forms of AI that have been modeled on, on these organic, if you will, neuromorphic structures uh, that have, are going to make a massive impact on, on our future. And we somewhat have an approach to this that's uniquely American, and we haven't really exploited this convergence. We need a way to be able to leapfrog technologies, right? And there's some technologies we're not in the lead of. We already know that. When we're building systems, we think, okay, what's the tech stack of things we want to build? So I'll leave you with five of them. Uh, I'll, I'll list these. Chips and hardware, software is number two, cloud platform and satellite, number three. Four are systems. This is very critical. If you look at uh, systems like tele telerobotic system, decision support, decision enablement, and decision autonomy. Autonomy, it's gonna have a, a big impact on our questions earlier. And the fifth area is wearables, BCIs, brain computer interfaces. Dr. G mentioned that earlier. When you've got your AI on board and it's helping mediate and fit, that may be the glue, but you're gonna end up with a new taxonomy, a new convergence. That's the issue. You know, what we did for a decade is we tried to think convergently about what happens when you bring together nanobio, IT, and, and, and neuro, what happens? How do you think differently in creating things? Well, that now is a time we need to apply that interdisciplinary complex systems thinking to these very complex problem sets, adversaries, in a multi-domain environment. So you guys laid down the idea of this, this convergence between neuro and AI uh, very well to set the stage for some of these questions. So on this podcast, we're looking out to the future. So where do you both see the future of these two ideas going in terms of both what the U.S. can do in terms of developing them, but also what our adversaries might do and in ways that we might need to defend from them? Let me speak to that first and then really hand that over to, to Dr. Canton because he is the professional futurist and forecaster. But I think and he mentioned five key domains, but also the idea of the actual nature of how these devices and technology is going to be yoked to the human system or other biological systems to be able to gain their effect. So if we think about those last two, systems of systems, and then how they're integrated into the biological organism, in this case, the human, but not just. I mean, realistically, we can also look to instrumented other species as cooperatives and as proxies for human engagement. We can certainly look to non-living organisms, such as biomimetic drones. And the idea of combining these into multi-hierarchical systems that are then able to integrate their information across these scales and levels, really what makes convergence work. And that's a fancy way of saying you really cannot do neurocognitive science and actualize these things into reality without big data and machine learning. Because what it allows you to do is to take things on a variety of scales and integrate them in such a way as to be able to bring the systems of systems together so as to create some form of structural functional holism. You're moving away from a construct called Mariology, in other words, breaking things down into component parts. To speak with Dr. Canton just mentioned, we're moving away from a purely reductionistic mindset into the mindset of how do things work interactively, because that's how the world works. But if we think about that one step further, you also have to think about what that then means to integrate these within these biological systems. So yeah, wearables are, are certainly a domain, but wearables in what way? Things that are donnable and doffable or things that are intrinsics. 
And the scalar properties that Dr. Canton mentioned, working down at that low nano level scale, whether we're talking about nano level concentrations of chemicals and or nanoscalar engineered devices, are highly implantable, inhalables, swallowables, injectables, migrated into key areas where yeah, my work intersects in the brain, and then form literally vast arrays of sensors and transmitters that allow real-time remote sensing and engagement of the brain. In other words, real-time reading from the living brain and writing into the living brain. And what becomes important to understand is that the longstanding history of our longstanding peer competitors culture has given rise to certain social ideals, certain ideologies, longstanding philosophies, values, and needs, and appropriately so. I mean, what happens, quote, in your house belongs in your house and reflects your needs, your values, your wants, and your desires. But these things are no longer rendered intranationally. They're now being leveraged on the global stage and the global bioeconomy, if you will, and they're having effect. And the issue then becomes, are there aspects of those different nations' culture that are in some way somewhat more ethically permissive and therefore allow advances that we must now try to at least remain apace with, if not strive to remain ahead of, if indeed we're going to be, once again, real peer competitors on this new global bioeconomy and its implications for national security, intelligence, and defense? Let's take the current case of ChatGBT. It grew from uh, within 30 days, actually a little bit less, 20 days, it grew to over 100 million people signed up for the free version of ChatGBT. For those who have been um, uh, deployed or living in a cave, uh, those are two different communities. Uh, ChatGBT uh, is a breakthrough. It's a accelerated first look at a potential, potential AGI or strong AI. And why is it important? Well, imagine, you know, whether you're an analyst, a warfighter, executive, whatever, you, you now have a crew of 100 assistants of which 90% of them are more expert at things because I've trained them and 100 plus million people have trained them. What are the implications when you have your own customized autonomous network of smart brains? I believe that we are headed towards having the capability of having a rapid deployment prediction engine that can be morphable, changeable, upgradable. It can travel in theater. It can travel in space, multi-domain, cyber. And to Jim's comment earlier, we will find the notion of a wearable may be, I'm going to have a soft, morphable, uh, nano-wearable that will give me the ability to tap the rapid deployment prediction engine capability. So in other words, in the private sector, we talk about software as a service. You know, it's not about hardware. It's not about chips. It's about being able to have access on demand, whether it's cloud or whatever. But the point is, it's available to tap on demand when you want it. Imagine prediction as a service. Now, those competitors that have uh, faster, uh, uh, smarter, meaning going back to Dr. G's notion of big data. We can't analyze the data we have now. Forget about synchronicity. You know, just the ability to analyze the data, have faster, smarter, more comprehensive, it's called data hygiene. We are able to really focus on what that is. And I can tell you, working with AI companies now uh, that are providing services like that to the government, 
that that is going to become a deliverable uh, uh, basis. So imagine having autonomous agents. Some are tied to this rapid deployment prediction engine, which is, by the way, bespoke. It's curated on demand for engagements. And then the other piece of this, you start then to converge neuro AI with emerging quantum information systems. Notice I didn't say quantum computers, but quantum information systems. Now what you can do is you have entanglement as a service. Maybe now what you have is the ability to be able to uh, uh, somewhat shape shift time and space because it's a non-linear experience, but nobody is waiting. In other words, viewers say, what are the key competitive domains that we need to outthink our adversaries in the near future, which is 10 minutes from right now, by the way, I would say it's, we invented most of this technology, but we haven't converged it and linked it. So if you were to say neuro AI and quantum, what does that look like to creating entirely new ways to collapse time beyond the way humans think? Once we start to unlock, I think, neuro capabilities that we inherently have, which interesting are nature-based and regenerative, I think that's going to be, that's going to lead the AI thing and lead the quantum thing because those are made by humans. The podcast is about convergence and it, a trade ox G2 a couple of years ago really defined key areas at 24, if you will, strategic conditions and domains over the next 10 years, they're going to be instrumental to the way cultures, if not the world at large, is affected and influenced by and influences science and technology on a number of these different scales and levels that are going to be instrumental to policies of not only public health and safety, but also global biosecurity. I mean, as we've seen, what's important to understand is that the nature of those strategic conditions is convergent. I mean, they're, they're not isolative silos of domains. They're dynamically interactive domains, persistent state competition, a new international cooperation model. I mean, now competition and cooperation working together in a new dynamic, which is referred to as coopetition, a real word, cooperative competition diverse technological actors, technological access and capability gaps, as we've spoken to many often being fueled by various culture distinctions, and those cultural distinctions then being leveraged by virtue of capabilities on the global stage, technology-reliant societies and contested spaces, and much of the contest of those spaces, both intellectually as well as practically, arise from and are fortified by competing narratives of what represents viable good. Good for whom? To what ends? Doing what? And then how do those create both idiosyncratic as well as systemic benefits as well as burdens and risks? And then, of course, what that then gets to is the idea of interconnected economies and interconnected ecologies. In other words, the reality of a biopsychosocioeconomic and political reciprocity is the 21st century global shift. But what this speaks to is that the nature of that reality, in other words, if the sandbox is a convergent sandbox, so that the tasks are in fact convergent tasks in their realization of creating certain leverages and hegemonies, then clearly the tools must be equivalently, if not equally convergent, if indeed they're going to be competitive and leverageable, so as to be able to exercise some claim on those hegemonies in authentic, genuine, and capable ways. So to speak to Jamie's point, if we fail to become truly integratively convergent, we will fail. Plain and simple, 
in part because our major peer competitors have a relatively seamless triple helix of government, the research enterprise, whether that's academic research or commercial research, and the commercial industrial sector that allows this continuity of interplay and integration on a very real and workable scale from the very, very small to the very, very large and from the local to the global. That's a great point, sir, both of you actually. And that kind of brings me to a question that I had. From your perspective, what do you see for our adversaries in terms of where they are at with this convergence of technologies? Are they lagging? Uh, If we're lagging, is it due to asymmetry in ethics or is it also due to the systems, as you just kind of alluded to, um, that some of their systems are more built for that convergence. So let me let me take the present with a view towards the future, which is really me passing the torch over to Jamie. Uh, where we are right now is that the United States and its international allies maintains a, a very modest lead in key areas across the NBIC framework, the nano, bio, informational, cogno, and cogno here conjoining neuro, obviously, and doing that reciprocally, both in terms of cognitive systems that are AI-based systems, using neuromorphic design, and then utilizing AI machine learning systems to facilitate what we know about organic brains and the organisms in which they live. But what I foresee is over the next five to 10 years, that will be a fairly short-lived advantage for three reasons. Number one, because the actual technological capabilities are being enthused by the triple helices of our major, at least trans-Pacific peer competitor, and the overwhelming and ubiquitous, if you will, sort of juggernaut of their economy, not only nationally, but internationally. Number two is that the, the nature of what can be done in China is in some ways flexible. And dealing with this on an international level of, of, of trying to gain some level of, of organizational and industrial cooperation, In other words, if we're looking for economic cooperative models that also recognize competition, our Chinese peer competitors are very savvy in recognizing that a key aspect of much of Western philosophy is acknowledgement of competing viewpoints and an openness or at least readiness to engage that as axiomatic to the philosophy themselves. And they're key point here is that there are wonderful aspects of Western philosophy that are wholly intrinsic with their value systems. But we must now appreciate that we're dealing with a very old culture, equivalently as old as the cultures of, of the West. And that culture for a number of years, hundreds of years, has been essentially isolated. The last hundred years have been viewed as the century of humiliation and only moving into the current period, notably, or as a sentinel year since 1949, has that culture been allowed to gain some global stature and status in many ways playing catch up? But it's no longer a question of playing catch up. Now those values and those values and desires of that culture are becoming paramount based upon the economic capability of that culture on a number of different global scales and markets. Therefore, the posture is, it's sort of an aspect of the golden rule, if you will. Now, those with all the gold rule and our trans-Pacific peer competitors coming to the table and very realistically saying, we got a lot of gold. There's a lot of things we can do. And we're not closing our doors. We're opening our doors. We're inviting and soliciting, attracting individuals to be collaborative. But the thorny part of that collaboration is that there are also intellectual property laws that are not only in China, but have now been leveraged globally 
that while being attractive to international cooperation, ground much of the IP to Chinese national property, which then creates tremendous leverageable capability and hegemony on the global stage, at least legally and economically. So what we're seeing is that although we're very keen to talk about, if you will, maintaining our fight for right and freedom, and those freedoms, how they can then be realized through technological and scientific readiness, we also have to maintain at least some attitude to what it means to keep our honor clean. Do we stoop to conquer? And do we compromise what may be longstanding Western ethics? Or do we actually engage in a more dialectical approach to ethical realities and revise certain ethical principles and perhaps renew others anew so as to create a new global order that may be far more cooperatively competitive and does so in a way that honors, if you will, certain moral precepts, not only of our own, but of others, and does so in a metered way. But that speaks to the future. And that's clearly in Dr. Canton's wheelhouse. I take a bit more of a, uh, let's say, a bit more pragmatic view of all this, but I agree everything that Dr. G said. We're involved in a war for the future. China, too, because of the background of the history and the context, that's the background of, of now obviousness. If wiser heads will prevail, you'll end up with a leadership in China that recognizes, hey, wait a minute, there's a fundamental economic basis for if you if you attempt to kill off your biggest customer, maybe that might have an impact on our economy. So let's just step back for a moment. The global economy is a collaborative, interlinked, codependent system. It wasn't in any other time up to very recently. 80, 90% of their entire income is derived from us walking into targets and buying stuff. Okay, this is the bottom line, all right? The bottom line. Now, why is this important? The the demographic debacle of the one-child policy is going to leave, within a decade, China at a deficit of not being able to replace their replacement, which is critical to any kind of hegemonic desires that you have to go ahead and, and operate your own country from an economic point of view. But they're trying to do it in 20 years, what we did in maybe... 200 years. So the economic underpinnings of all of this, that really is a core foundational reality. Now, the Chinese are betting, and to a certain extent, the US and the EU, and these are the three major forces on the planet, if you will, they're trying to figure out a a, a new kind of, and they should have an innovation detente to not go hot. So at the end of the day, I like where Dr. G is going in terms of a Cooler heads will prevail with a collaborative basis. But at the end of the day, before that happens, this war for the future is going to get tried out. And I think it's going to be surprising. So we should, you know, hope for the best, but prepare for engagement, space, oceans, multi domains, cyber. And that's where, again, coming back to our thesis, our thesis is that neuro AI convergence is critically important. Are we moving fast enough in this? No, we're not. Are we behind on this? Yes, we are. A big part of us doing this podcast is to say, look, we are insiders in the game, but we need to move up our game. We need to not sit back and go, okay, we invented ChatGBT. We invented you know, mapping the human genome. This is great. We, our biggest weakness is our biggest strength. You don't stop innovating. You raise the bar. We need to get back and think through the next opportunities for, for neuro AI 
so that we can provide a peaceful, secure, global security, which has been the role of the United States and will continue to be that role, while we continue engagement with uh, China and many other adversaries, uh, you know, in the what I call the dark network of non-sovereign rogues and, and non-rogues, we need to use these technologies to provide a more secure. It's going to be a tough ride over the next decade, having new frontiers. Now, what's the drag on those? Well, we have some moral issues. I mean, they're not discussing uh, in their five-year plan. You want to know what the Chinese are going to do? They publish it every five years, right? Uh, the Chinese uh, 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 and many of our of our our peer adversaries are not just publishing it, but they don't have the same value system as we have. And uh, having been part of uh, you know the various briefs and developments on, you always have to have a human in in the kill zone. That you know at the end of the day for kinetic AI, you know we're going to have to develop. Uh, a let's say a, new, uh, a kind of a, a new appreciative way of what are the conditions of engagement to be able to signal that we we can deter and make it let's say a future that is not a war but is a negotiation is a collaboration is an understanding can only be only be successful if you have the right stuff to be able to stand things down. So that's just my, my, my sense about this, is that this is an imperative to step on the gas. Should we do something about it? Yeah, we should. So I'm hoping a listener here will reach out to us and say, yeah, I'm in a position to do something about it. And uh, I want to talk to you guys. So you both make some great points, and, and there's a couple that I want to bring up, but you both talked about the asymmetry in ethics and morals and, and norms between uh, the US or the West and some of our adversaries or competitors, China specifically you mentioned, but there are, there are others. Um, and Dr. Dr. Canton, you mentioned that we are lagging behind in this area. So based on what you said and Dr. G, what you said about what the technology can do, you know, you mentioned reading the brain, writing to the brain. Is this something that we can pursue while having it still align with our stated values and norms in the West here? The exciting part of this is that this is not an unknown. The idea that there are, are ethical distinctions and ethical issues that arise from cutting edge science and technology that may need to be at least explored, if not addressed towards creating some compromising or conciliatory resolution, is is a reality and it's a visible present and acknowledged reality so for example darpa right now has a request for proposals looking keenly at ethical legal and social issues arising in and from various scientific and technological trajectories that represent the darpa portfolio not only today in 2023 but working within a 60 calendar month heilmeyer catechism so uh, here we're seeing is a forward-looking ethical legal social engagement and much of that is predicated upon the understanding that there are certain things that our international peer competitors are capable of doing because of their longstanding philosophical basis and cultural ethos that may not necessarily be tangible or gustatorily feasible in the United States. In other words, it creates a yuck factor here. And then the other issue, of course, is that there are longstanding Western values that are far more individualist versus a collective cultural mindset. And that has to be acknowledged. That's a reality. And you can't simply go in with an imperialist stance and ask your international peer competitor or even an ally to be wholly aligned with there's going to be your moral, ethical, and cultural worldview. That smacks of imperialism. Contra that, however, is frank ethical relativism, almost a laissez-faire attitude. So the question is, how do you get something in between? 
there are ways. I mean, there are methods. Our group has banted around the idea of utilizing certain forms of philosophical and ethical equilibrium, such as something called a fagard equilibrium, and also looking at certain principles of what's called minimax and maximin. In other words, the idea of minimizing certain burdens, risks, and threats while maximizing viable goods and recognizing the viable goods that may be maximized in one place may in fact incur particular burdens and risks in others. So an iterative process and a reciprocally balanced process of minimax and or maximin, where now we're providing maximum benefit to those groups and individuals who have minimum opportunity to achieve those benefits. Well, this all fits into a larger quasi-calculus. What did it take me, about 20 seconds to say that? Easy to say, really difficult to do because it has to be a work in progress. And the reason for it is quite simple. Science and technology must lead. If it doesn't lead, what tends to happen is you fall into at least some level of speculative fictional predictability, which may not necessarily be real. And at worst, you occupy yourself with fictional fantasies or generate things that tend to be performative, but not necessarily genuine or realistic. So again, it's a bit of, if you would, the, the Colling Ridge dilemma. In other words, you're only encountering these ethical, legal, social, environmental issues after the proverbial cat's out of the bag because you have to recognize the reality of them. But what that dictates is continuous vigilance and not just discourse, but an openness to dialectic. In other words, that there may be contrasting positions, perspectives, values, and views and it's not just a question of one refuting or contramanding the others, but how can these be brought into some conciliatory landscape based upon the architecture and geography of the working space? Now, it gets more difficult the more players you have and the more diversified the working space, but it's not an impossibility. Where it becomes difficult is the necessity of abandoning certain long-held precepts that you may hold near and dear simply because they're historical and recognizing that there are other ways to approach the same moral issue that may involve compromise and in some case may actually involve a reconvergence and restructuring of one's own perspective so as to achieve a more goal-oriented end. That's the approach to the problem. Going forward and how one does that and what kind of systems are necessary to put in place, well, that I think bespeaks much of the body of Dr. Canton's not only past work but present work so, you know, he, here's the scenario as futurists, we like to, you know, write scenarios. And I've done a number of them for, for MedSci and Defense and Intel. Scenario one is that we've already adopted, right, for the Defense Department and so the defense posture, if you will, that a human has to be in the kill chain, right? You're not going to turn over complete autonomy. Well, we already know from an adversarial point of view, Russia has already deployed uh, robots, let's say, uh, defensive uh, robots that are fully, quote, autonomous. Now, I don't think their science is as good as ours, but, you know, their Russian science is pretty damn good. So you're going to have a scenario where we adopt a ethical posture that says human beings have to be in the decision-making before an autonomous system, regardless of how powerful, has access to either a weapon system or is a weapon system. That goes away when uh, we lose the East Coast. Okay, that goes away. Now, that's one scenario. The other scenario says we have a bifurcated or trifurcated set of conditions that what happens is we have human engagement based on these conditions, 
And then autonomy is part of the mix in the event there needs to be, uh, and I'm not talking about mad, I'm not talking about mutually assured destruction. I'm saying that these are various levels of tools that uh, are gonna impact the battalion, the soldier level, the battalion level, the analyst, and citizenries, because you have to now look at ghost wars and you know the whole new world of, of, of space and cyber and everything in between. That's where we should be playing and modeling scenarios now, because you can tailor the action engagement and rules of engagement now because we have so many like wars that are going on now. Now, if you look at those and the implications for brain hacking, or, you know, we, we've talked a lot about some of the tech stack. We've talked a little bit about the scenarios, but autonomy and ethics, we have to have a fail safe to be able to deploy what we need and what we need. Here's the reality that nobody really wants to hear is that AI systems today and tomorrow's neuro AI systems, and I do mean very shortly, will be able to make decisions and analyze data faster than humans. Done. You either enhance the human to understand that, rapid decision-making, rapid deployment, rapid analysis. If you either, we, we can do that, and there's lots of different ways that are non-invasive. Neuralink and other companies are playing with ways to do that. But that same technology can be hacked and used against us. So there's broad, ethical, much bigger ethical, social impact issues. But I am confident that we can navigate these properly. But if we don't invent, we don't keep moving forward with safeguards, but also the proper safeguards that are adjustable and adaptable. In other words, we may need an AI to govern AIs. Okay, got it. How many policymakers in government and in our Congress understand that and have created a taxonomy for that? None. So I'm advising most of them, Microsoft, most of them I advise in the private sector. Well, we need the private and the public sector to come together. We'll get there, but this threat matrix of potential is gonna be more exasperated and our ability to be able to have an ethical, let's say label and constraints are gonna be tested. And there's things like our survival as a species and as a nation will be on the line. And I'm not the first to say that. Let me parlay something that, that Jamie said here, because it, it's critically important. I mean, do I think that it can be done? Do I think we can actually achieve not only that level of parity, but perhaps in some levels, greater preparedness and, and therefore higher levels of performance in key domains of the science and technology? Yeah, I do. I absolutely think we can. But, you know, some work that was done, again, part of it was TRADOC funded. And I thank TRADOC and Rami for that. And some of the work was done through SOCOM and worked with Jamie on this. And some of the colleagues we worked on with uh, former Captain Rick Bemsith, Dr. Diane Deulis from the NDU, uh, soon to be Dr. JP DeFranco out at Colorado. In, in modeling what you have on the global stage right now, you've got two peer competitors that are now creating for the United States and its allies, both transatlantically and transpacifically, a three bodies problem, which as you may recognize from physics represents sort of a disequilibrium with regard to not only homeostasis, but in the actual dynamics of how things interact. So using the three bodies problem, one of the important points is can you create relative equivalence among those bodies so that they have relatively stable equivalent weighting so that their dynamics in the real world of that system 
or at very, very least comparable, and if not in some areas, superior so as to be able to weight that three-body system in a favorable way based upon which body seems to be the body in favor. But the only way to do that is to recognize that our peer competitors, in fact, have that seamless triple helix of government, the research enterprise, and the commercial enterprise. Now, that's not to advocate an authoritarian government in the United States, but what it is to advocate is a whole of governmental approach that avoids partisan default bickering and recognizes that there's a definitive strategic plan, which has not been articulated. I mean, let's face it, in the United States, every four to eight years, we change our posture. And it's not just a question of redirecting the damn sail. In many ways, we restructure the keel and reorient the bow of the boat. And if there were continuity, that would be one thing. But very often, it's a question of the king is proverbially dead, long live the king. And tractionable policies that have gained some inroads to this level of future stance are then abandoned or at very least modified in such a way as to lack the continuity, point number one. So the fact that we need a truly bipartisan unity for whole of government to be able to then channel all of those profoundly useful and very effective government resources is paramount. But while that's necessary, it's not sufficient because that whole of government must then conjoin whole of nation approaches. And those whole of nation approaches cannot and should not be divided by binary partisan ideologies that do not recognize a common United States strategic plan if, in fact, the very thing that we discuss in the United States, which is those political freedoms and liberties, are going to be preserved in light of the capabilities of our peer competitors and adversaries. So I think that Jamie's points are well taken. I mean, that level of convergence to keep the theme going requires convergence not only within the government to actually have convergent governmental energies towards a directed strategic plan, but convergence of whole of government and whole of nation so as to be able to leverage that plan in those ways that remain a pace and or ahead of our peer competitors' capabilities. I'll just throw in one more, you know, kind of practical what to do and all that, right? So um, when, when I was at SOCOM, and that's actually one of the ways that I, I met Jim, was, um, I was I was tasked with seeing what the private sector is going on, you know, what's happening with venture capital and startups and uh, mature companies and all that. And how can we leverage government labs, technology, which nobody knows about. And so there is a fertile landscape of opportunities. There's money, there's innovation. What we need to do is to have better bolt-ons and revisit how to collaborate more and that's why, you know, uh, Jim and I are, are mad scientists because at the end of the day, we represent that kind of, we need better real world collaboration because inevitably uh, uh, there's not that much and it could make a big difference in terms of our, our, our I think, our survival and our, our, our way of life. When it comes to convergence of neuro, biological, AI, what are we missing on the step to this? What is... What is, for lack of a better uh, phrasing, what is the holdup? I think there are a couple. I mean, so working working in the neuroscience and tech domain, which obviously engages big data, engages machine learning, uh, and and I'm not a computational guru. Again, my my background, my expertise lies in, if you will, the wet science, neuro. Uh, but neuro is capabilized by a number of those widget technologies, the, the engineering technologies. And the construct of neuroengineering is bidirectional. In other words, you're engineering tools to explore neuro. And then the more you know about neuro, the more you can engineer tools to be able to access and affect that neuro. So the reciprocity is like one hand washing the other, and they're both washing your face. 
is there a missing link? Well, it, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, one of the quote missing links is that clearly in neuro, it's always a science of correlation because I don't care what kind of brain scientist you are. If somebody sat you down in the corner, put a gun in your ear and said, tell me how mind occurs in brain. It's like, go ahead, pull the trigger. I don't know. But is it necessary to know? And the answer to that question, at least in the short term, is no. If you can develop a large enough pattern of structural functional correlatory information, what you're able to then do is you're able to say, look, we're bridging what sometimes you refer to as the token gap, where cognitions, emotions, and behaviors represent tokens of what might be myriad underlying neurological events. And by bridging that token gap, we're moving more towards something called type physicalism or type cognitivism. In other words, there's a particular type of neurological patterned array that produces this type of output in this individual in this set of circumstances. Heretofore, that was unthinkable because the amount and diversity of data that that would require to realize such a precept was unmanageable, number one, in terms of its acquisition. And number two, it's assimilation synthesis and therefore patterned output. Now, we've crossed that boundary. So one of those impediments in terms of just the informational overload has already been bridged. However, it's also a question of making sense of that information. And in some cases, letting the machine learning and the AI do what it is doing over and above what may be intrinsic builders biases in the system. So although we are very, very comfortable with humans in or on the loop because we view that as protective, we also recognize that humans outside of the loop are in some ways enabling and empowering of the capabilities of AI to do what AI can do over and above what human constraints may therefore impose upon, point number one. Point number two is the scalar phenomenon. And you have to consider that the scalar phenomenon of things, particularly neurocognitive, is multidimensional. Yes, it's very important to understand what's going on perhaps at the single cell level, but are we really all that concerned about one particular single neuron that's souping or sparking away in somebody's brain? Or are we far more concerned with the idea of how the systems of neurons and glial cells interact dynamically in that particular organism, that individual in specific environments? The short answer to that question is, yeah, that's what we're really interested about. Because it may or may not be that that single cell or clusters or niche or click of cells may be instrumental in all phases under all constituencies and all contingencies. But getting that pattern down is critical. So it's a question of scale, just as it's a question of scale on the larger end to be able to make individual to group comparisons and therefore normativities that can be predictive. So the scalar phenomenon is the thing that needs to incubate. And what we see are periods of incubation. And during those periods of incubation, like so many other things, things go cold. They become relatively stillborn. They become stillborn because of their failure to thrive. However, there are enabling technologies or radical leveling technologies that when applied in novel ways will revivify those things stillborn and give them new life under new contextualizations. So if I were to look at the field, I think it's really a question of identifying gaps, analyzing why the gaps are there, and then looking to bridge those gaps in such a way as to say, what technologies do we have and what should we do with it? And what science and technologies do we lack and what do we do about that? Then the real question is, are we ready to go there? You know, just bringing together people from various areas to find the convergence to find that that seems to me something you know mad side could do you know there are folks that are focused and and part of this is just there's so much and and jim knows this the neurocog space 
of, of people who are actually doing applied work and are looking into the brain and understanding the processes. And all. in other words, if you look at Neuralink, what Elon Musk is doing, right? BCI development, right? Very interesting. It's probably the only venture as being as bold and they got FDA approval to, to do this, this. So part of the pathway is, and we learned this at, at, at NSF is, you, you know, if you're doing stuff, we had this, this follow-up to NBIC convergence, uh, which had to do with enhancing human performance, right? And, and w w those are the key technologies. So if you, if you start to think differently about convergence and you, then you, have, you have these three or four poles that you can put together, what does it look like you can create new systems? So we haven't done that work, right? So if you put in a room, simply put, neuroscientists and you curate them well, make sure you know they're open and all that and, and Jim blesses them. And then you've got uh, AI folks who are spending you know two to three million dollars a day and have commitments of billions of dollars. And you say, look, let's find that interaction and collaboration that be best for these kinds of missions, how do we deal with autonomy? How do we deal with uh, faster decision-making? What does a neuro AI uh, system look like? How could we do better prediction? If you could do bad guy hunting faster and then predict better. So in other words, if you create a couple of vectors of scenarios and say, okay, this is what we're thinking about might make a difference. And you bring people together. You might also bring together you know, funding sources that should be alerted that this is a, a cabal, a conspiracy, a good conspiracy. That's how you make change. If you look at you know, the current chat GBT, which is a very interesting uh, uh, case. I, I, I lecture at Stanford for international organizations. And I will tell you, chat GBT breaks the whole thing. Why? Because it's outsiders. Sam Altman was an outsider, late to the party, no AI background. And, and because of that, it's the, you know, it's the Einstein thing. I'm, I, it's the guy working in the patent office that changed the entire notion of physics. It wasn't the guy that led the physics department at Yale at the time. Uh, so I'm trying to say is, you know, uh, nonlinear uh, adaptive learning where you bring together people with various parts with a proviso that we're going to see if there's some fundable opportunity here, because a lot of what we're talking about has been reduced to, let's say, experiments and research that is not collaborative in looking at this. And we're going to need to, look, we have to play catch up. Everybody thinks we've got it all together and we don't need to play catch up and they're smoking something and inhaling it, I'm telling you, because we need to play catch up. And we know, Jim and I, we understand what's missing and we don't have to have all the answers. We need to have the right people in the right room to be able to get those. And I think we need a lot more of that if we're going to make these big quantum leaps, we need more Sam Altman's to say, "Hey, man, I'm going to we're going to try this stuff and see what happens." We honestly could talk to both of you gentlemen uh, for hours, and we truly appreciate you making the time and and your dedication to uh, national security, and and that's why you've been such a major part of Army Mad Scientists. So we'll transition to our rapid fire questions. First, what we ask all our guests. What is a trend or technology that keeps you up at night? Now, Dr. G has done these already. We do have historical evidence of his rapid fire question. So I don't know how this is going to play out on round two. He may disagree with himself. All right. So I'm, I'm going I'm to defer that first question over to Jamie because I did answer these before. And so it may be that his answer prompts something new or novel from mine. So Jamie, over to you. What keeps me up 
at night, it's the combination of, of nanobio synthetic drugs or devices or let's say systems that, that get out of control, that, that escape. So nanobio is, a, uh, is, one, is one of the things that keeps me up because it could, the ability of rogue technologies to develop their own, you know, uh, it wouldn't be much to program an autonomous agent with a chat GBT 10.5 that would design something that even the people that have the foundries wouldn't know what's really being designed, meaning they'd be designing different pieces and then weave it together and then deploy it. And we wouldn't even know who deployed it. Let me run a little bit with that because if, if I'm trying to remember what I said last time, and of course now I'm, I'm over 65, so I can't even remember being on Mad Scientist last time. So the, the issue here is, Again, I think it speaks to the nature of the podcast. I mean, it's convergence. So it's not just a question of saying, is there a particular science or technology, but what happens when you put them together? And you can put them together in a variety of ways. You can put them together in ways that are intentional. They can be unintentional. And then unintentional, they can be together as a hybrid, or you could develop something that's chimeric, right? And, and the chimerism of that science and technology creates something that is then auto-generative, so auto-poetic, sort of making itself or developing itself along key trajectories. And you may not be able to predict the, the valence of that. That said, if you take a look at any form of integrative scientific convergence, the key parts of that that keep me up at night the idea of synthetic biology coupled with gene editing, coupled with scalar effects at the sub-nano level. Because if you put all those things together, you begin to get down to a scalar level where you don't fully understand the properties. That borders on things quantum, but not just. Because you may be affecting certain things on a quantum scale that are going to translate it very differently into the mechanical and classical domains. But now they're behaving in ways that were heretofore unanticipated. And so what you're now getting is unanticipated effects based upon your manipulation of the underlying nature of the thing in a way that was previously impossible. So sort of stepping into those vistas without necessarily having what we call footfall effects, in other words, engaging techne without logos, well, absent the, the sort of literally the rational accounting of the tools and the tool use in terms of scenario planning in the short, intermediate, and longer term, and being prepared for that, not saying don't go, but being prepared for the fact that things can go wrong and will go wrong and being able to recognize them early and often. That's the thing that makes me lose sleep. What is something about you that you're willing to share on air that most people might not know? And we'll start with Dr. Canton again. Um, I, I have an alternative persona, uh, and this is because of tequila, uh, which I only use medicinally. Uh, I will be at a club or I'll be out at a party. <laughs> Jim's going, hope the joint staff doesn't eat. <laughs> uh, Jim, we're beyond that. They, they love it. Uh, I, I go up to uh, a band if I like their sound, right? And I say, do you mind if I sit in with you? And they go, great. What do you play? I play traps. That's, you know, drums and rock and roll. And, you know, that's my thing. Uh, or, or rhythm and blues. And they go, well, well, do you have a background? Who are you? And I go, I'm, I'm, I'm Jake Canton, Eric Clapton, studio drummer. Don't you know me? And do you know, 10 out of 10 times they said, sure, yeah, of course, Jay Canton. Yeah, we know who that is. Great, no problem. So that's my jam. What can I say? They say the best way in is act like you belong. And and you also got the Ron Swanson, uh, Duke Silver thing going. Hey, what the heck? All right, that's mine. So, so Dr. G, here's the two that I remember. I think you, I think you said two of them. Uh, you were a bouncer at a club at the Jersey Shore. Is yeah, that right? Right. Okay. And you're classically trained in piano. Do I have that no, right? No, jazz piano. Jazz, jazz. I was close. Jazz. Very close. Yeah. The part of the first thing that's uh, kind of interesting is, you know, I, 
I don't know, I probably look bigger on camera, but I'm actually the same size on camera as I am in person. I stand a whopping five, six, but yes, I was a bouncer. I was a lifeguard and a bouncer down the Jersey Shore in Belmar and uh, Long Beach Island in, in, in uh, Brant Beach. Long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. So I got to add something else to that. Um, I'm a, a certified union carded horseshoer. I'm a farrier. That is pretty good. Yeah, I had 13 horses at one point. You got 13 horses, you better start doing feet. Otherwise, you're going to go bankrupt. So I had some time. I went to farrier school and uh, yeah, I'm a card carrying farrier. So you're a farrier out of necessity, really? Yeah, right. Exactly right. So horseshoes out of necessity. Those are some really good facts that we did not know. Um, so we'll ask our last question, which is often uh, called our, our most difficult. What is your favorite movie? I'm a big science fiction fan. So there's some great, I mean, the thing that got me into the field, literally uh, sparked my interest years ago, I probably told you this was Fantastic Voyage and it just blew me away. I said, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to use a you know, cool military technology, a laser, submarines, like nanoscale stuff, right? I went to see the movie with my dad. He was a nautical engineer. I came out of the movies like, that's what I want to do. My dad looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, yeah, well, <laughs> here I am, dad, I'm doing that. So yeah, that, that's one of them. The other one, I mean, so there, I got I got two. Um, another sci-fi. I mean, I love the original Gojira movie, the original Godzilla movie. I mean, that that's like film noir, social piece, great sci-fi, man against nature, man against man, ethics thrown in for good measure. But there's a movie called Dark Blue World. I don't know if you know about this. Uh, it it's not a real well-known movie. It's about Czech pilots who were flying with the Royal Air Force in the Second World War during the Battle of Britain and then beyond. And it's just a brilliantly done movie. It's a great movie about camaraderie and friendship. It's a great movie about changing social postures. I mean, I, as you guys know, I fly, so it's a great pilot movie. It's got some great flying scenes in it, but just a great movie. I mean, it sort of creates an interesting love triangle and what's the value of friendship versus love. And it's just really, really well done. So that's my hit parade. I like it. I hadn't heard of that one. That's on our list now as well. Dr. Canton, how about you? Blade Runner. It doesn't BS anybody, you know, it tells you this is what it's going to look like. And, uh, and of course, it's very relevant for our, our, our talk today, uh, obviously, uh, because it portends many of the futures that we look like that we are in. My, then the other movie is Dune, and the, the next chapter is coming. And that is kind of a nice, you know, on the bookshelf, one end is the fairly dystopian notion, which I'm not a dystopian, I believe, you know, you shape these realities. So Blade Runner represents also the, you know, kind of the independence and the self-reliance of the individual against the machine. And Dune represents a big look at, you know, the spice, which of course is all the technology. It's a metaphor for all the technology we're talking about, the ability to be able to uh, collapse time and, we have fold time and travel, and then the blending of, uh, of the, the spiritual, which is the post-future religion, but the enhancement of individuals. I just think that um, we're headed towards something that looks like it's between Blade Runner and Dune. Okay, well, that wraps up our rapid-fire questions and thus wraps up uh, the interview we have with you both. And I feel like we didn't turn over half the stones we probably could have on this subject. Um, so we want to thank you both for being uh, prominent mad scientists. We want to thank you both for coming on the show today, always being friends to the program and, and always jumping out when, when you guys have something that you think the Army should hear about that uh, is going to help us look at the future in a different way. So thank you both for being here today. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Pleasure and honor. 
Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guests, Drs. Giordano and Canton. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.